This is the Nomad Futurist Podcast, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and transformation. Connect with us, share your thoughts with us at nomadfuturist.com. Let's get this started. Here are Phil and Nabil. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Nomad Futurist. This is Nabil Mammoth from Hawaii. This is Philip Koblenz from Brooklyn, New York. And this is Joanne Friedman from Toronto, Canada. So let's start a little bit uh, with your background. Uh, what do you do, who you are, and how did you get to where you're at today in your career? Okay, well, let's start with the current. I'm currently Chief Executive Officer of Connected Minds. My area of expertise and the company's area of expertise is that we are digital transformation coaches. And we use a coaching model because we see the topic of digital transformation as not only being multifaceted and multi-part, but as a continuum. You can't start at one point and not sort of segue into 10 or 12 or 15 others that have nothing to do with technology and everything to do with how business models are created. So what we found over the course of the last four years of deep diving into things like Industry 4.0 or advanced manufacturing, which is the sweet spot of our practice, is that it is a continuum of effort to move from a traditional business model into what most would consider digital business. And the ultimate goal is to create a digital business. That involves things like data as a service and so on, and how you're going to monetize data. In order to get to that point, you sort of have to look at it a little bit dyslexic, the end back to the beginning and reverse engineer all of the business processes and business models that would go along with it. So we choose to coach because we realize that our clients don't necessarily need the handholding, but they need the empowerment of knowledge to be able to get them from point A to B. In other words, connect the dots between each of the components of digital transformation and so on. And I got to this point in my career because I've worn multiple hats over the course of more decades than I'd care to mention, but primarily because as an IT industry analyst, I saw the need in the market changing to be more comprehensive. Even though people have short attention spans, what they really need is the longer view. And getting to that longer view sort of means empowering them with knowledge and resources and toolkits and methods and models, things that don't normally come from the analyst world, to give them the full perspective of how they want to achieve their goals and then help them by setting sort of a framework for them to follow to get from point A to point B. Going back in time, I was an IT industry analyst primarily for the last 20 years of my career. I moved out of the corporate world when Gartner came calling, uh, their Canadian edition, Metagroup. And I did that world for a period of time where I found it very interesting to wear a different mantle, meaning not one of a, a single corporation, but one of many corporations. Because as an analyst, I didn't look at just the market per se in terms of technology, but really a focus on how it was going to be used. And I've never been an ascriber to a one-size-fits-all model. You really have to understand what corporations are going to do with the technology that you're advising them about or recommending to them or giving them comparative analysis on and its landscape. You have to understand where it's going to be put in, how it's going to be used so that they can avoid some of the um, traps of implementation. Going back farther than that, I worked my way up through the ranks of IT in multiple large enterprises in the pharmaceutical industry and then in the uh, discrete manufacturing side, uh, high-tech electronics. Loved it. I've probably done every job there is to do in IT, whether it was developing or applications or integration, servers, you name it, I've done it. And what I found working my way up was that there were very few women. You needed to learn how to be one of the guys and I think if I was to give a message to younger people about that part of my career, I would say persevere, but don't get pigeonholed. In other words, keep learning. And one of my personal goals has always been lifelong learning. What led you to getting into pharmaceutical, then into IT, and being an analyst to where you're at today? What was that transformation part? Well, 
my original goal was to be a pediatric surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon for that matter. And my dreams were quashed by a dean of a medical school that basically took me aside when I was pre-med and said to me, you will never succeed, not because you're female necessarily, but because you have three strikes against you. You're under five feet tall, you're female, and you're Jewish, all of which made me absolutely head spun, gobsmacked, whatever word you want to use. And I said, I'll prove you wrong. And this kind of went on for a semester, semester and a half. And my grades were great. That was not the issue. I was not political. I wasn't sort of keeping my head down, but I was also not the biggest voice in the room. And the battle continued until one day he literally had me meet him at a hospital and stood me in an operating room in front of a table. And he said to me, go ahead, try and reach across it. It was literally just below my chin. And being the kind of person that I am, I went or looked around the room, couldn't find anything, walked out into a hall, grabbed a box, brought it back and stood on it. I said, and your point is what? And he said to me, you'll never succeed. They'll find a way to get rid of you. This kept up over and over again. So coming from this great desire that I had had from being a little girl all the way through university to wanting to be a surgeon and having my hopes and wishes dashed, I looked sort of around at what else I could do because he ended up being proven right. Over the course of the next two semesters, the more interaction I had with people in the academic world, the more they kept telling me, you can't, you can't, you can't. So I said, well, okay, maybe I'll do the next best thing. I had written some software at that point, got involved in a bunch of different things with IBM. And then over the course of time, I said, well, gee, I also have this other thing that he didn't even know about, which is I'm severely drug allergic. Best industry to join? pharmaceuticals. I will be the proverbial canary in the mine. And I got involved in um, some projects within the first pharmaceutical company that I worked for that were very related to technology. And it suddenly dawned on me that this is the world's most creative tool. And I can play that tool however I want, call it a virtuoso of technology. And I began to get involved in things that would really make a difference to humanity, whether it was working on campaigns that would help educate people about new therapies that were coming out onto the market or get involved with how communications could be handled differently or data assets could be handled differently. I moved from one pharmaceutical to another to another and ended up getting some secondments around the world and seeing sort of an international perspective, something that I have enjoyed my entire life because my parents started me traveling when I was very young and then I was educated abroad. So this sort of gave me more perspective on how technology could be used, but how it could be used for a human cause at a time when technology was just emerging, when the internet was just emerging as a vehicle for communication. So that sort of led me down the road of not only experimenting with different kinds of technology, but also finding out more and more about what the world was actually like in pharmaceutical, because a lot of people have a very jaded perspective of it that it's just about money. And really, it's not. There's a lot of very dedicated people who have committed their careers and their livelihoods to finding new ways to solve a problem that hasn't been solved. And I think that's germane to what we're going through now in a lot of different ways. I have a, a fondness for people in research and people who are looking for complex problems to solve and now coming to those of us in technology and saying, how can you help us? And then at one point in my career when I had been around that industry for about 12, 15 years, somebody showed me a device and I became very enamored with it. It was a very, very early design for a prosthetic, robotic prosthetic. And I thought, wow, what a great way to help kids. And so I became involved in it and that started my transition into high-tech manufacturing and electronics manufacturing. And that took me into my next industry. Outstanding. Sounds like the perfect career. Is there anything that you wish you had known when you started out? Yes. I think I wish I had known that if you don't consistently move and really plan your career, you get stuck. 
whether it's in tech or any other profession, you can get pigeonholed. And I think for IT folk in general, we're given a set of tools and we're not given the permission, if you will, to use our creativity in ways that are not part of what is now considered, I guess, DevOps. So as I rose through the ranks, I took that life lesson, if you will, and I started applying it in a different way, in the reverse. I created teams that were very specialized, but I gave them the permission to create, be experimental, never worry about failure that it wasn't going to be held against them. So I created things like job shadowing programs where I would have IT folk go out into other departments to really learn the business and bring that learning back to what they would do as developers, let's say, or how they could support business partners better. The life, the lesson, if I had learned that as a younger person, I think I probably would have been a better contributor in some ways and a better collaborator because I too would have had the permission to use my creativity. And I didn't really get that until later on in my career. Once I had gotten into managerial positions to give other people that empowerment, but to also start using it as myself. And that's really what kind of drove me into the world of the analyst because I was no longer wearing a single corporate mantra. The only uh, way I had been able to do that before was to participate in industry standards groups and to, to work with people from other organizations developing the specifications used by industry in their technology, whether it was through ISO or through one of the you know, W3C or any of the major groups out there. I chose to participate and write those standards so that more people could use them, more people could adopt them. And I look at that as the creative outlet and the creative avenue away from the day-to-day managing of an IT organization in a large enterprise. You know, what's interesting is that you never really hear about people using the word creativity to describe people in technology. And I think that's, you know, it's a unique element. Certainly, I found it uh, across my career that the two go hand in hand, you know, uh, staying problem solving and just staying curious in general. Um, and trying to understand that there is not usually one way to solve a problem. There are many different ways to, to solve problems. And I think that's something that our listeners would, would certainly appreciate is that the notion of creativity not being anathema to technology, them you being able to leverage creativity in technology um, to take it to, to the next level is extraordinarily important. I, I would absolutely agree with you. I think... I think the notion of of IT folk is that we are collectively the definition of sort of nerdy people who look at either engineering or code or something that's very tangible and that we're not really given the opportunity in our day-to-day lives in IT of being all that creative. And to me, that was always something that was lacking. Because people are who they are. And to go into technology, I think one of the messages needs to be, particularly whether you're young or old, people who are in management roles within the technology organization of an enterprise need to understand that if you free up that creative spark in people, you'll get way better solutions where innovation needs to come out of technology as well. It's such, a, it's such an amazing and extraordinary point that I, I don't want to belabor, but it's so important and it's so tied to um, how managers manage and cultures within organizations and giving that runway to people to, to not fear um, thinking outside the box. We talked in a previous podcast with, uh, with Mark Thiele um, mm-hmm. about um, this idea of not compartmentalizing uh, people in technology as, as many organizations really across verticals do, where if you are in tech support, you only focus on tech support. If you are a programmer, you only focus on programming. And and the idea of giving people the freedom to try to understand the entirety of what an organization does and, and have the freedom to kind of gravitate towards what makes them tick, it makes it so much easier for, for those people to succeed. Because when you do something that you like, and you gravitate towards and you don't feel, you know, you're forced to do, um, you do it so much 
uh, so much more effectively. And, and you know, happiness creates the, the, the ability Success. For, to be successful. Exactly. And uh, yeah, amazing point. I, I agree with him. I agree with you. I've always looked at it like I've never quite understood. I mean, from a technical perspective, you understand, for example, why there's certain separations, right? Why QA and testing is different from dev. But what I've never understood is this siloism within IT organizations that, well, those people are DevOps and those people are, you know, QA or those guys only deal with servers and these guys only deal with feeds and speeds or plumbing or cloud or whatever. You know, I look at the newer technologies like cloud or edge and I see enormous potential to let people have a freedom to leverage a, techni- a technical capability in new ways. John, do you think cultural driven, that's educational driven? I mean, the siloism, as, as you're referring to in DevOps and QA, the same thing falls into data center from electrical, mechanical, operational services, right. so and so forth. That siloism exists in every vertical, every market segment that we look at on a daily basis. Do you think that is educational, cultural driven? And how would we get people to be creative? An example would be like, look at Musk. Musk was a programmer and see where he's at today. He was a creative mind to begin with. Probably it was the education, the exposure that he got, the, the amount of travel that experienced with his family growing up. There's all these individuals out there that are not following the typical mindset or the culture, but they have been the change agents. I think that there's a bunch of different ways. I can tell you how I built teams, but it's only one example of allowing creativity to find find the person and find the find the people with the creativity. For example, when I put teams together, and people uh, chided me for it, and and there were significant ramifications for me doing this. For whatever reason, because my background or my ethnicity leads me to have been a person of the world, a citizen of the world, I don't look at cultural differences the way other people do. And when I started hiring members of a team, for example, I hired one person who happened to have been of Russian background. And he had a a difficult time speaking English. And I said to him, what other languages do you speak? It turned out that we both spoke French and a few others. And we started communicating in those languages. And yet I live in a country that prides itself on its bilingualism and its multiculturalism and whatever. But this happened to be a U.S. parent company that I was working for at the time. And I remember a, a VP coming by the group when I was just in the early stages of putting a bunch of teams together, saying to me, you know, our business language is English. And I said, true, but our productivity language is whatever the heck we choose it to be. And I made a point out of it because I ended up hiring a bunch of people who all spoke similar languages. And I never made them speak English. I just allowed them to become a unique group when they communicated with other people. Yes, I expected them to speak English, but amongst themselves, and this goes to cultural bias in a lot of respects, I believe that there's two significant items here. One is educationally, we're given a path to study and whether we look at the job market in comparison to that path or not, we almost always look at, well, what's the highest paid salary? I'm going to go after that as a norm, particularly people just coming out of school. But also the on the cultural side, I think a lot of people who come from other countries are told, go with the flow. And they're not allowed to necessarily express what they truly feel. And their barrier becomes a language. I believe it's more a cultural driver than the educational one that prevents people from becoming as creative as they could be. I think in general, you find, you know, people are, especially in the corporate world, are creatures of comfort. And, you know, they tend to move away from the universal language of productivity and having everybody row in the same direction, the notion of, of now everybody working in, in some way remotely and, and not necessarily being all in the same place 
at the same time, all those more traditional ways um, corporations, you know, had thought about, um, you know, their work environment is being upended. Um, and, and the people that, that embrace that, you know, multiculturalism and, and ability to not necessarily focus on, you know, a, a person's, um, you know, cultural attributes, but, but more what they bring to the table from a productivity standpoint um, is only going to accelerate. So in the current state of affairs, what are the biggest hurdles and what are some of your strategic focuses? You talked about digital transformation, remote working, remote workforce, work from anywhere. What mm-hmm. are some of your strategic focuses? Well, the strategic focus is on process because process is something that you can look at without necessarily having to have, you know, a a production, a manufacturing line, a shop floor in front of you. That's one of the strategic focuses is getting people to understand that you can reverse engineer or rework a business process without necessarily having to be in the office. I mean, most people look at manufacturing and say, well, if there's a shop floor and people working on a production line, how can you do anything? You can't do anything with uh, with comms. You can't really do anything with the machinery. What can you do? So process is something that we're, we're very focused on to begin with, but really it's identifying what are the goals that you're trying to achieve? Like what's the outcome? Do you think the old God are driving that? I mean, they, they grew up in a certain culture with depression, so on and so forth. They're the ones that like the bums in the seats. Uh, they're very monetary driven. Yes. Is COVID-19 going to change the thought process? It's, it's accelerated the path of the half digitization that we have actually experienced in the last decade. We've been talking about it for more than a decade for digital transformation. Do you believe that COVID-19, as it's transforming our lives and it's affected the workforce, it's creating a culture for working from anywhere, working from home, working anytime, will that help change the mindset of the old card? Will it help with the organization change management that's been needed? Yes, absolutely. And I'm seeing it in a variety of different ways. I'm seeing it from people in, in let's not call them small business, but let's say midterm manufacturers, certain companies are coming to mind. Take an example, like Bauer. Okay, they've stepped up, they've created PPE, face masks, because they make hockey equipment. You know, the face mask on a helmet is not that much different, really, than the personal protective gear that hospital workers need. They've open sourced the design, they've let anybody else create it, and they're switching, they've switched production to be able to make that. That's an example of a company stepping up. But where I'm going with my comment is that I think the COVID-19 has brought out the creativity in everyone, whether they're volunteering in organizations or they're just looking at how can I help, you know, in a concrete way because I'm a manufacturer, because I, I, I'm an industrial designer and I can tweak a, a, a CPAP device or a BPAP device or even a snorkel to become a quasi-ventilator, something can help. And so I think if there's any silver lining in the pandemic at all, it's that it's gotten people out of their professional silos, whether they're in technology or not, to say, hey, I have an idea for this. Let me find other people who have ideas. And I think that this is going to spawn this notion of what used to be called blue ocean thinking, the big picture thinking that people are going to start looking at their day-to-day jobs and not falling back into the silos and norms that they had before because now they've found solutions, they've found communities or what they believe are solutions, I should say, and found communities that support them no matter whether they're in one company or one office, but anywhere in the world. I mean, if you look at some of the organizations that are um, – uh, with large memberships, 12, 15, 30,000 people. There's a whole maker community that has stood up and said, hey, we want to help and here's what we can bring to the table. That overall thematic, I hope, doesn't leave us as a society, but continues to push 
into our day-to-day lives of saying, hey, you know what? When it comes to digital transformation, we can be more creative in our solutions. We can take this piece of technology and use it in a slightly different way than we would have done previously and now have better results. They're also not afraid to experiment. And a lot of that is because they've been forced, they've been, they've been disrupted by force, and they've had to either, you know, figure out ways to continue their operations. I have, I have two follow-ups. One is, is there any question that a Canadian could be asked that doesn't somehow involve hockey as the answer? That's my first. The second is, you are, you know, someone that talks to several different types of organizations across vertical about... Uh, digital transformation um, and to a certain extent, you know, monetizing data and and turning um, their business into a a digital business. Do you find that any industry, if there's any industry that doesn't necessarily lend itself to digital transformation or monetizing their data uh, over others, have you seen trends in, in that regard that are interesting? Yes. Let me answer your second question first, Um, because the first one is kind of a given. If you're Canadian, there's always a hockey association somewhere. Yes, there are industries that don't relate well. I would say, believe it or not, the electronics industry, the high-tech industry on the hardware side, does not lend itself well to digital transformation. And in many respects, has long been the shoemaker's child. Others that could be easily disrupted and have not been health records. And I realize that U.S. regulations versus Canadian are very, very different. And I'm not trying to step on toes here. But that whole system of HIPAA, HL7 with big insurers, ripe for disruption, doesn't lend itself well to digital transformation not because of the technologies, but again, it goes back to process. It goes back to business model. And the fact that I think a lot of companies, while they may have understood places that they can disrupt insurance, for example, or health insurance, haven't really focused on the bigger picture issue. They focused on taking a policy and doing something with it. But What I want to know is why isn't there something for me to be able to go and look at that says you are more susceptible to COVID-19 than perhaps other people? Why? Very simple answer. Because you travel a lot, because you go to conferences all the time, because you speak at them. So you're always in large groups of people. Are you therefore more susceptible? Yes. So it's our activities that have to be added into our predisposition because of underlying illness, our gender, our demographic, our whatever, whatever you want to add to it that forms the data set. So those industries, those two in particular, I found are not quite ready to accept the realization that being a digital business is being a different business than the one that you're in. Well, it's changing the core of the infrastructure and changing the processes, really. I agree with you in a lot of ways, but when you say that electronic industry, for instance, doesn't tend itself to be ready for digital transformation, it's going to happen. It will happen. It needs to happen for everybody. It's a change of processes and organizational culture, isn't it? It's about organizations and processes, but it's also about things like, have we take electronics? It's a very complex global supply chain. They pretty much seem to have offloaded the digital transformation to the suppliers before they started adopting it for themselves. I mean, if you look industry-wide around the world, not to call out one uh, country more than another, but in the U.S., you have a lot of very large, big-name behemoths of the industry who are really not well down the road of digital transformation where they should be because they seem to forget that as an industry, they feed 11 other industries like automotive and aerospace and defense and you know consumer electronics, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not talking about like your headphones, I'm talking about uh, the boards that go into your refrigerator or any other IoT device that's now coming out. The, the point that I'm making is that it's, it's about offloading to a partner who you believe may be more oriented towards doing digital transformation than you are yourself, which 
bodes the question, well, what are the processes that you're actually still doing? We're, we're no longer in, let's say, 30 or 40 years ago where there's large vertically integrated manufacturers. They've all outsourced for cost savings. So is COVID-19 going to make them rethink that business model and therefore they'll start adopting digital transformation sooner? Sure. I mean, at the beginning of COVID-19, I reached out to a bunch of people I know in the electronics industry and said, why aren't you guys stepping up? I mean, after all, you make boards. If you make boards, you can make boards that go in ventilators. Well, that really goes back into your creativity discussion. Right. As human beings, we've gotten to the comfort zone and we don't want to think out of it. It's working fine. It's working fine. Why fix it? It's not broken. Why make processes simpler, easier, better? And, and unified, and that's just the mindset. So that's like the change of the old God. And with this hockey stick effect, again, apologize for referring to analogy over here, but with the hockey stick effect with COVID-19, it's going to hopefully transform these businesses and these industries and get us into industry 4.0 relatively quickly. Well, I would hope so because I, I have a very specific perspective on Industry 4.0, and that is that it is it is, if you dig deep enough and go through the really uh, the manifesto is what I like to call it of it you find that there are four or five design principles that really dictate the way it needs to be done and the case in point that I would make is that those design principles support what is actually an optimization strategy. And there's a lot of people who've written many, many works about this. I'm in the process of writing one myself. But in in the notion of Industry 4.0, what you're optimizing to get zero time to value, meaning as close to zero as you can uh, get, rather than you know, 24 months or 18 months or whatever in terms of realizing the value of something is the notion that it's time that's being optimized. Time, think about all the endless meetings that we all sat in for years and years and years. How much of that time could be taken away from the overall production of something by thinking outside the box, by being more creative? And I think that's where getting to Industry 4.0 and these higher level concepts and more thought process before you embark on it really speeds the actual journey. I mean, part of what we do professionally is help companies shorten that digital journey because four years, five years, it's obsolete in year two. Go back and reinvent. You can't continually be on that treadmill. You have to think of about the longest term picture and then work it backwards to be the shortest amount of time that you actually spend because technology itself is changing so rapidly that what you put in today, AR, VR, mixed reality, whatever, is going to be completely different in a year from now. So why obsolete yourself out of the gate? So I think the whole notion of the pandemic and people having to be more creative, not only in their work environment, but generally speaking, going to those design principles, and I can give you a concrete one in specific, uh, if you like, is looking at how you can optimize time in a better way by using that spark of creativity, by being curious, by experimenting, by not being afraid to fail. And companies that take that mentality will succeed a lot faster. And those very high failure rates that we still see 11 years after Hanse Mass and Industry 4 was first you know, announced to the world will start to come down significantly. Continuous education, organizational change management and leadership are some of the driving factors. I think leadership is a big one. I think those... Those companies where leadership is stuck in 1995, this should be a wake-up call to them. First of all, that IT is not just about keeping the lights on and feeds and speeds and you know making sure that everybody has what they need, but that we are creative thinkers, we are problem solvers, and sort of they need to adapt that mindset that we're capable of a lot more. It has to be a cultural shift from the leadership perspective, but it also has to be a less business model-driven leadership approach and a more futuristic business model approach. 
that has to take place. It's not rip and replace everything. It's take what's best in your organization and kick it up a notch or three to get to, to where you want to go. Exactly. Well, that's the whole premise of Nomad Future. We want to have these shaking conversations and disruptive conversations and you know, give people a different mindset of thinking outside the box and be creative. So let's talk COVID, COVID-19, the monkey in the room. Yeah. It's transforming our lives. You've got a great background, uh, particularly coming pharmaceutical and the medical industry and getting into tech space. So it's really affected all of us. The normal state that was yesterday is no normal today and it won't be the normal tomorrow. In your experience, in your world, how do you define that normal of the future? Ooh, normal of the future is going to be, I don't think the word normal actually applies. Norms are something that you know large numbers of people adopt as a habit. I don't think that we're quite at the point where we know what those habits are going to look like. I would say probably for the next year or two, we're going to see a major shift in people telecommuting and, and remote work definitely being part of the enterprise culture. I think very quickly companies have come to the realization that there are certain things that they never kept track of. Like I had this conversation with um, uh, a young lady the other day. When we all went to offices, some of us remember the days when offices actually had four walls and a door. And it gave us think time. It gave us privacy. It it was a great arrangement for many, many people. Then they took the walls down and we all went to open concept. And most of us have a really hard time with that because we're, we get distracted by noises and people around us and whatever. Then we went from open spaces to... Well, there's space allocated on a first-come, first-served basis. And by throwing us in a room with a lot of people with the open concept, it seems, and I've, I've asked a lot of people about this, nobody was actually tracing or tracking how much more incidence of illness there was, which is kind of a, an interesting thing when you think about it. I mean, whether it was HR people or insurance people, you know, when you had your uh, health accounts and all of that sort of thing, how much more incidence of disease was there and lost days of people in offices because somebody came in with a cold and it spread or the flu and it spread and they came in because they had what they considered to be critical things to do or deadlines to meet or whatever. But nobody seems to have been tracking that. We know that productivity took a dip as part of what the new normal will be is to look at the cost of that office space and determine whether or not it's really worth it to have that I think that's going to be a key determinant of how many people work from home and how many people actually go into offices. And I think that that's going to start to change the whole dynamic. It may take five years to fully kick in, but I think that's going to be a key indicator. The second thing I think about the new normal is we're all going to ask for more from our service providers, not only in terms of our internet connectivity, but also our security and how we actually interact with each other when we're not on lockdown. In other words, will we have like team meetings once a week and all work from home the rest of the time? We need that connection, people to people, uh, but do we need it every single day? And the other part of that is how much more stressed or rather less stressed and more productive will we be if we don't have the morning commutes? I don't know about you, but if I have a meeting downtown Toronto, I'm sitting in traffic for an hour and a half. And I would suspect in New York, it's probably something similar. Hawaii, well, you could just walk down the beach. I think the realization is going to hit leadership and companies that the cost of that office space is really not justified by the loss in productivity, whether it's just because of noise and distraction or illness. And I think that's going to come up as a key metric. There used to be a, a key differentiator, right? The, the, the ability to work from home versus, you know, the more traditional companies, many of them, you know, the larger companies that, that insisted um, that, that employees worked from the office and didn't really embrace this work from home culture, you know, in order to get 
the best talent now, I think it's it's going to become clear that uh, any of those companies that don't embrace significant portion of their their working environment from home are, are going to have to evolve or they're going to be disrupted themselves just by not embracing I, that. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think also... Um, and I don't normally try go down the road of gender specificity, but I would think for women who have young children, they're going to want to do it even more than they ever did before. Now, I'm, I'm, I don't necessarily want to go down the road of gender inequality and all of that sort of stuff, particularly in IT, where it is rampant, by the way, but irrespective of that, I know that when I had my son and I was having to drive across a city or commute across a continent uh, every weekend, it was tough and it's stressful. And there's new, you know, there's something in Harvard Business Review by a gentleman named Ringel who is an epidemiologist. And there's the piece basically talks to the health of business travelers or people who are constantly being commuting. In the case of women, I can't tell you how much I would have loved to have been able to be in the same place as the same city as my son uh, when he was growing up so that I could every once in a while be able to pick him up after school at 3.30 in the afternoon. If women are allowed to do more work from home, it's not about the daycare necessarily because they still may need after-school programs and stuff like that, but it's the ability to go and actually say, hi, child, you know, this is me, your mom. I'm not just the workaholic you may see, to spend some quality time with them during the day whether it's a half an hour or, you know, from 3.30 in the afternoon onward. It's, it's also, I think, going to change the hours which people work. Whether we, whether we acknowledge it or not, we all work on a 24-hour clock, whether it's by geography, by clients or customers or suppliers that we have to talk to in another part of the world. We end up, we have put ourselves in a position of working almost 24 hours on, on a 24-hour clock, six days a week, seven days a week. If we can work from home, we can create ways that we can interact with our family, decrease our stress, be more productive, and be happier people willing to take on more as opposed to I have to spend an hour and a half driving to an office and an hour and a half coming home. I don't get to see my child. I'm harried every which way I turn around. How am I going to actually be productive by the third day of the work week? I think, I think it's an incredible point. You know, I hear, I've heard a lot um, from, from colleagues of, of mine that are, you know, in, in the finance world, you know, that were traveling constantly, that they now have a newfound realization since they've been, you know, with, with, the, with the stay-at-home orders of how difficult it's been on their family in a way that they would never realize because, you know, there was this kind of expectation that this is their life and they're traveling around all the time. So it's not like they were necessarily in an adversarial relationship with their partner or their wife or, or whatever. And it was never really brought to their attention that it was, you know, so difficult. But now that they've been at home and they see how much is involved and how much more, you know, they're able to participate, they, they have a realization of how difficult it was for them to leave on the rest of the family and, and yep. how much they really missed by, by not being there in a way that, you know, was not clear to them before. So I think from that standpoint, it, a, a lot of families, I know there's a, there's a lot of, you know, trending social media stuff about COVID divorce, and, right. and whatnot, but I think a lot of families are, are going to have a newfound appreciation for their families and trying to determine if you ever get to the point where you can go back to traveling, you know, really prioritizing when when you're going to do that. Yeah, no, I, I, I would tend to agree. I mean, in my case, I had a, a spouse who was local, who was, you know, ready, willing, and able to step up when I wasn't here. I had to travel a tremendous amount. And I would say, you know, just, just as an example, if I added up over the number of, uh, over years, the number of months that I actually spent in Silicon Valley over a period of three years, it was close to 11 months. Literally back-to-back -back trips. So, hell, 
not as glorified as people like to think. I mean, I'm sure you've had the experience where people will say to you, oh, wow, you get to travel. That's really cool. No, it's not. It's really hard. And, you know, this uh, study that I was referring to before uh, makes a good point because it talks about the conditions that those of us who travel so often uh, face, whether it's a question of alcoholism or obesity or back issues that we all seem to have. And then there's a whole mental health component, the stress of it. I mean, I realized when I stopped traveling as much as I did to a less, you know, to not travel as much and find associates around the world who could, you know, represent the company or become employees that could be in another geography, it was like I had to almost mentally check myself into a rehab facility for being an adrenaline junkie. Because you live on adrenaline and your family does pay the price for it because when you get home or when you go on vacation with the family, it takes you like a week to come down off of that because you're constantly go, 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 go. So, yes, people I think will value their families more. But what's even more important is that the leadership of their employer starts to recognize that this is what they have given up. And this is what accounts for the stress-related illnesses, the kind of lousy mood that people are in, the fatigue, the overwhelming feelings that people have, the anxiety levels that they have. If the employers start to recognize that they would be that much more profitable if people are that much more productive because you're not forcing them into this sort of um, uh, mouse wheel, then I think we'll all be better off. In general, the idea that everyone is so ubiquitous and everyone across the organization, really across the planet, um, is experiencing the same thing. That, that kind of shared experience of it will probably bring, you know, the HR managers or, or the other type of managers that, that, you know, implemented those types of rules and regulations, um, you know, to, to embrace that, that thought process because it's happening to them. It's not just something they're hearing about from, from a third party. Well, I would, I would think as well that this is the other part of business, I think, that's going to have a major overhaul in the next couple of years, and that's the HR function period. It's not to say good, bad, or indifferent about HR. I just think that their whole mindset is now going to have to change around mm, the well-being of their employees. It's not that they didn't care before, but take some of the rules away, let people have a life in a way that they've now begun to experience for themselves is going to shift the way HR policy is done. I think we're going to see massive change in that whole organization and the way organizations actually work. I think it's going from a North American perspective, it'll become more European uh, where there is quality of life. And if anything, that I learned being in the pharmaceutical industry, it's that if you sell quality of life, you better be treating your employees with great quality of life. And they really do. Uh, and it's something more. that I think a lot of other industries could learn from the, from the pharmaceutical industry. Absolutely. The idea of work-life balance. You know, if you're going to the office every day and you have like a standard nine to five job, and you go into the office, that, that, that separation between, you know, being at work and being at home is distinct. And, you know, for someone like me, likely for someone like you, certainly for, for someone like Nabil, you know, we've kind of always, uh, in terms of our uh, exposure technology, always been kind of on the front lines and 24-7 and, and always accessible and always kind of on duty. But I wonder if there's something that, that people need to think about um, as time goes on, as I start working from home more in terms of actually making sure that they're actually present for their families, even though they're at home while they're working, you know, they're not really that present and, and how to, uh, to embrace that so people don't end up burning themselves out because everyone is now sleeping in the office. Um, I, yeah, I think depending on the profession that you're in, there hasn't been the nine to five job for many, many years. 
And you've made, we as employees or business owners or consultants, we've always made the time to accommodate for our customer or our client. One of the things that I adopted a few years ago when I stopped traveling as much, I still travel, but certainly not to the degree that I did previously, was I made a point of telling people I am not available at between this time and this time and this time and this time, whether it's for you know uh, Europeans or people in Asia, these are just unavailable times and it's purposeful. And I started doing it probably 20 years ago. And at first it was like, well, that's not very accommodating was the response to be able to say, I deserve a life. And I think that that mantra is one that takes discipline more than anything else for me to say, no, I'm sorry. I have a life. Whether I say I have a life in my head or just I say, no, I'm sorry. I'm not available to someone else. The principle is the same. I don't know if you agree with that. Totally. Going through this personally, this is really life transformation. One of the things that I talk about in the whole digital transformation, experience transformation and organization transformation is we've got it wrong. We've had it wrong. America We've had it wrong for a long time. We talk about work and life balance and wrong. It needs to be life and work balance. Life comes in first and work is secondary. Yeah. Well, it's either you live to work or you work to live. And I think, you know, for years I had a lot of European colleagues. And when I worked in Europe and when I lived in Europe, um, I couldn't understand. Wow. You know, certain countries, the, the rules are... You get a month off for a winter vacation and you get a month off for a summer vacation or two months or whatever, that there was a lot of vacation time. And how could these companies actually be all that profitable, et cetera, et cetera? Yet they're some of the biggest in the world. I get it now. It's the same mentality that I started putting that into practice that I think the world at large is going to start viewing it the way perhaps the three of us do, which is we got it wrong. And we had become slaves to our professions. It doesn't mean that our services or our intellects are to be diminished in any way. If anything, I think people should be lauded for standing up for themselves and saying, I deserve to have a life. Yeah, we all need a voice. Yes. The culturally, we have actually lost that voice. We've lost that creativity. We are just a part of the system. I call it the glorified slavery. America never actually got out of it. Just changed the guards. Anyhow, a lot of good stuff is going to come out of COVID-19, so we need to start thinking positive, work from home, yep. work from anywhere, going to actually embrace the concept of quality furthermore, as we have in the last decade or more. So, Joanne, what gets you excited? I mean, as it entails to technology, I mean, what kind of tech are you looking at? Is it the next self-driving autonomous vehicle? Is it the autonomous drone? What is it that uh, keeps your juices flowing? Oh, there's a lot of them. Cobotics is, is probably top of the list right now. What I'm very interested in is a cobot is designed to be not an industrial robot, not a little, you know, thing that runs on the floor, uh, you know, uh, uh, a vacuum on steroids, but rather the robotic helpers that we're all going to have. And what really intrigues me is the interfaces and the dynamic of conversations with cobotics. So let's assume that, you know, we didn't change the world in this conversation and people still go into offices and or and there's cubes and there's little cobotic helpers around their office spaces that are designed to do not just some mundane tasks, but to really be helpful in a sort of cognitive way. What is the what is the conversation between me and my workmate, this cobot, going to sound like? Do you say please and thank you to a robot? That maybe Canadians do. I doubt Americans do. Well, but it's a good question, isn't it? Are you going to say please and thank you to your cobotic helper? What is that dialogue going to look like? Where is that interpolation of data going to come from as it comes from the AI device behind the robotic face to me as a human being? Will it say four-letter words? If it doesn't like something that I do, 
I mean, there was just this whole thing about uh, intellectual property rights and the fact that uh, I guess the Supreme Court has decided or whatever body it was, I, I just read about this very briefly this morning, has decided that robots actually cannot create in the sense of intellectual property law. How is that, how is that relationship going to evolve? That's, that's one part of technology that really, really fascinates me because I think it's the same issue of whether I get into an autonomous vehicle and interact with its computing capability or if I have this cobotic helper sitting next to me in an office space. That dynamic, that whole interaction, is it going to sense my body language or is it just going to be able to understand my words? How will I deal with it from the human's perspective? Yeah, it's, that's it's, amazing. Program, it's got to depend on the programmer, right? Yes, but if we look <laughs> at machine learning as it is, it's not situational. And that's, I think, a key factor that's missing from how we're doing machine learning and AI right now. It's not situational. It's repetitive. It's task-oriented. It's a very long if-then-else statement. Yeah, it's again very siloed as well. Right. Doing just simply one function, and that's our definition of machine learning or AI. We're not right. looking at the bigger and, picture. No, we're not looking at the context. We're not looking at the situational analysis, this notion of cognitivity that will come probably in the next 24 to 36 months. It'll come up as, hey, there's a fly in the ointment. So in many science fiction movies, and, and with these cobotics, many science fiction movies present this dark vision of the future. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of humanity? If you had asked me yesterday, I would have said I'm doom and gloom. And that's because I was reading uh, information from National Health Service in the UK about children and, and COVID-19. Today, I'm in a more optimistic mood because I see opportunities for new kinds of analytics to come up to sort of snap our attention back to the fact that we are one humanity, that we should treat each other as we are humanity, not a bunch of bots. I don't think that we're going to allow things like AI to run our lives in ways that many people think they can that would represent a dark side of humanity. I'm looking at things from the point of view that say, if we're smart about how we use these tools, we can do susceptibility analytics. We can leverage those autonomous vehicles in ways that keep people safer. If we get smart about it and put a humanistic side into technology, which has long been lacking, then the future of humanity is brighter. Pandemic or not, we'll find a way out of this. There will be therapies. There will ultimately be a vaccine. But I think if we get smart about the fact that human lives are precious and we need to treat them as something treasured, then everything is going to start to change. Outstanding. COVID-19 is one of the ways of uh, resetting everything. Uh, I, I think it's a wake-up call that we needed. Based on the current circumstances, what uh, would you suggest some of the thought leaders out there that potentially might listen to this podcast, younger generation that's coming into our space, what are uh, some of your last thoughts? What would you like them to focus on and or work on as you move forward? I would like them to embrace their creativity. I would like them to see the world in a slightly different way, not only about living to work, but about all the wonderful little things that have come up in this horrible, horrible situation, like the fact that we have affected climate change. The skies are blue. The skies are bluer. They, you know, there are certain parts of the world where you can actually see mountains. There are certain parts of the world where asthma, people with asthma are suddenly getting better. It's forced us to look at nature and climate change and all of those kinds of things in a different way. Now, I, I keep hearing this notion of the food supply chain breaking or being broken and people being ordered into factories to, you know, produce meats in the U.S. 
And I look at that and I say, well, gee, I've been a veggie grower for a long time. Why not? Why can't we learn to live within the climate change condition, take it seriously, start doing more for ourselves? I think if anything, I would like them to focus on the idea that we can do a lot of wonderful things together, but the world does not have to run on the word convenience. And I think that's what really has fallen by the wayside. Not everything that we do say or produce has to be done to be convenient. This has been great. Nothing lasts forever. Markets will come back, currencies will rebound, businesses will go on, and we'll all move on. That could happen next week, next month, or next year. I'm confident that those who prepare rather than panic will come out of this stronger. Thank you for joining us. This has been brought to you by Nomad Futurist. Check us online at nomadfuturist.com.